So hi, hi everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Inantech Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Cutchers, and today is podcast number 36. And I'm here with our mobile editor, Andre from Shannu, for Mobile World Congress 2016. Now, this is the annual everything mobile and to do with devices through to infrastructure show. We've been here covering all the press events, getting very little sleep, but we've seen some exciting things and we've posted some exciting things on the website that you should definitely check out. But for this podcast, we want to go through a few of the things that we've seen and a few of our thoughts on the matter. So say hi, Andrew. Hi, everybody. Nice to be here. So the first major launch we covered uh, back uh, the day before the show started on uh, Sunday was the LG G5. This is LG's new flagship smartphone using a Snapdragon 820 with uh, Qualcomm's custom cryo cores coming in at 5.3 inches. 25 by 14 screen, 4 gigabytes of RAM, then 2 gigabytes of storage, 2,800 milliamp hours. And Andre was at the press conference. I unfortunately didn't, only got to see it later in the week. But this device has an interesting new feature to bring to the market, I think. Yeah, so big design change change for LG. So they went from a plastic body, which they've, they've been known for in the last few generations of their flagships. G4, ever, we know it, with its curved design, removable plastic back cover. LG dropped all of that design from scratch and the big thing here is like they have a modular design so it means basically the phone, the bottom of the phone, you can unclip it, the whole bottom of the phone, which contains basically the USB-C charging port, the speaker, microphone and bottom antenna. So you can unclip the whole thing and with it, it also disconnects the battery. So like that you can actually Remove the battery. The battery is clipped into the bottom part. The battery slides out with the whole mechanism. Then you unclip the battery itself from the bottom part, replace it or charge it or do whatever you want with it. And you can put a new one, put it back in, and there you go, you have a charged phone. Aside from changing the battery, the bottom part also has another trick in the fact that it can be replaced with new features for the phone. Yeah, so basically the bottom part is like you have different options for the, for the bottom part because it is kind of generic and there's like no special components in it you can replace it with other parts with similar components so what they showed at the show this time around was two new options so one was a dedicated uh, digital amplifier basically it's instead of using the the phone's sound chipset and headset jack you get an additional headset jack on the bottom module, which which is supposed to have actually improved sound due to the Bang & Olufsen uh, DAC on it. So it's meant to be able to basically put through higher quality audio. Did we confirm if there was sort of like high impedance headset support? No, we didn't look into that yet, but... That would be an interesting thing to figure out. But the whole thing is a lot of people listen to music on their smartphone, so if they had this modular bottom, which we assume will be somewhere in the region of 80 to to $100 extra yeah, well, as, as an accessory. So yeah. it's basically an accessory to the phone. Yeah. yeah, the question for me is like really... So I tested it out with my own headphones, so I plugged in the top part, which uses the... The Qualcomm, I think, it's the Qualcomm audio chipset, which is built into the phone, and then also the the add-on DAC. So there is a difference in quality. It's definitely noticeable. But my question is, like, is it because the built-in sound is bad, 
<laughs> or is the add-on deck really that better? So that's one thing which needs to be tested out thoroughly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there, there are other. I mean, like I said, it uses the Snapdragon 820 SoC and everything that comes with that. So we will see other smartphones with similar audio as long as you know amplifiers and everything else have been sorted out the same way. Then we can check to see if it's actually the implementation or the benefit is from the Bang Olufsen directly. Yeah. So the second module was a camera add-on. The camera add-on has a small integrated 1000 milliamp hour add-on battery. It wraps around the back, the bottom of the phone. It's a grip. It's a grip, basically. Yeah. It has a back te- texture, which is very grippy, so that's that's a positive. And it also has some dedicated buttons for camera functions. So it has a zoom. Uh, is that a scroll wheel? Yeah, yeah. That was a scroll wheel, yeah. It, it's a scroll wheel in one corner, typically like how you find in dedicated cameras. It has a shutter button for still pictures. It has a recording button for video. Did it have anything else? I don't remember. It might have had a uh, audio recording port. It was, we literally went through it very quick. Yeah, it, 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 it was quite quick, so I, I didn't pay too much attention to that one. Uh, but the thing is, it, I, I don't know if it's really necessary. Except it, for the add-on battery pack, I don't really see myself using that. Maybe they, they, there might be other people who find it interesting, but I myself, kind of odd. So many people take pictures with their smartphones, and every smartphone company is saying, hey, look, we've got the best camera, you know, we've got X amount of megapixels, our microns are this size, we've got this feature, you know, we can, you know, maybe we have a dual camera or whatever. A lot of companies are pushing that camera aspect, and I think this is meant to be that sort of, you know, add-on for people who want to spend the extra hundred bucks to get the module. Yeah, I, I think the biggest advantage for, for the, this module is like the scroll wheel for zooming because, because of the G5's camera system, so, the G5 has two cam- main cameras. One is the main camera, 16 megapixel module. So it's actually the same one as on the G4. That means like an IMX uh, 234 f1.8 aperture. We've been pretty familiar with that camera, so we haven't had the opportunity to actually test much. It kind of seems like it was the same quality. So any improvement might have been like on the image processing side due to the new Snapdragon and any calibration that LG has done on the camera. So the special new feature is like the second camera module. So that's an 8 megapixel shooter. We haven't been able to find out what module it is and which sensor it uses. But the special thing about it is like that it uses like a 135 degree viewing angle. So you really capture a lot more in front of you. How How LG implemented it is that it switches between the two camera modules when you zoom in and out. So basically, if you zoom closer in, you have the main 16 megapixel sensor, and if you try to zoom out, it switches over to the other module. It, well, you can imagine being at a wedding, having to take a picture of everybody, and not everybody can fit in. That's essentially the sort of thing where it's for, just group photos. Yeah, so in general, I, f- I think it's fine, but the implementation is a bit bad because the switch between the two camera modules takes a bit of time, so it's like one second, two second uh, transition, which kind of takes you out of the, it, 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 the experience, so it's not that good, it in should, my opinion. It should be seamless, but after the transition, you then also have to refocus on the new with the new camera. I didn't test that out quite yet, but might be true. So that's that's one of the things where... 
Which is going to be critical. It'll be interesting when we get one into test. Um, we think that one's going to Josh, so uh, we'll definitely uh, crack the whip and him to get that review out. After the LG G5 was the annual Samsung Unpacked event. And this event, now we knew it was announcing the new Galaxy S7 and S7 Edge, but I, I want to talk a little bit about the event specifically, because this event is, I want to say it's somewhat unique in how other, you know, compared to other press conferences and events before. Now, normally, when we go to a press event, it's just a singular stage, flat stage, and everybody piles in behind on chairs, and everybody's hot, sweaty, and uncomfortable. Uh, with with this one, we walked in, and the stage was in the middle of the room. But just 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 for context, Samsung has had their last two, at least the last two launches at MWC in the same building. Um, but this time, the stage was in the center, covered in screens. And the chairs were arranged in a circular pattern around the stage, obviously with breaks in so people could walk in and out. Now, Samsung previously put Ethernet on every seat for the press, which is great for us if you remember your USB to Ethernet connector, which I didn't. But they, on each seat was also a Samsung Galaxy VR headset with uh, equipped with a Note 5. And, you know, apart from being told on loudspeakers not to sit on the headset and not to kick the headset around, it was interesting to actually see a headset. And we were postulating at the time, is this going to be a presentation in VR? Because there's no obvious stage. It's just essentially a box in the middle of the room covered in screens. A cube. But then the uh, the event started and the screens came up and, you know, people were talking and... At two different points during the presentation, we had to put on the VR headset because they were, you know, presenting the new phones in VR, or at least the visual aspects of them. They weren't necessarily doing the presentation VR, which I think would have been really cool. But if they had done that, it would have been really hard to cover in a live blog because you'd have to keep taking your headset off and typing or taking pictures. Taking pictures in VR is uh, not easy. Yeah, you have to take into account all the viewers who are watching the live streams and the media who want to take pictures, so that would have been one complicated aspect. It's interesting on two fronts, right? Because um, during the presentation, they had Mark Zuckerberg on stage, um, which caused a lot of press to rush the stage because uh, apparently he's someone important or something. Yeah, I, I, I don't know who he is, but uh, many people were kind of crazy, going crazy. <laughs> But the, the interesting thing came out, there was a picture of um, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, essentially walking to the stage during one of the VR presentations, and everybody around him had a VR headset on, completely oblivious to the fact that he was, you know, walking within two feet of them. <laughs> and and that, and the caption with that image, um, you know, I can congratulate the guy who actually took that image. I think his name was uh, Connor. Uh, I saw the original tweet, but it was... Uh, yeah, it's essentially the future, right? Everybody's in headsets, nobody's knowing what's going on, you know, or unless you have a headset with head-mounted cameras, which one of the uh, guys are doing. But Samsung launch was, yeah, the high-end, new high-end Galaxy smartphone, um, evolution of the Galaxy S6 and S6 Edge, which came out this time last year. So this is the S7 and S7 Edge. Samsung are doing some interesting things this year um, to do with the hardware. Samsung have their own silicon design department, and they've been working on their own custom core to put in their SoC, along with their own uh, baseband, their own RF and Wi-Fi. And because they don't have CDMA for the US market, the US market get Snapdragon instead. Yeah. 
and Snapdragon 820 being Qualcomm's custom core. So we have essentially the same device in available in two different models. Chances are there'll be 20 variants of each model, but there's going to be two models. One with Snapdragon 820 using Qualcomm's Cryo cores, and one with Samsung's Exynos 1890 with their custom M1, Samsung M1 cores. Now, at the show, they only had the Samsung variants, and Josh previously has played with the Snapdragon 820 developer platform unit as part of a Qualcomm Media event. Yeah. And uh, since then, we've also acquired a Snapdragon 820 phone, a different model, which we'll talk about in a bit. But uh, I want to hear Andre's thoughts. So, yeah, basically no big surprises here because uh, this year there have been a lot of leaks. So we kind of more or less knew what was happening to the S7 like almost two months ago. <laughs> Is it? But, but, yeah, so... Big exciting thing in terms of technical spe- specifications is like Snapdragon 820, Exynos 8890. We got to play a bit with the Exynos. First impressions weren't that good. <laughs> the spec rundown, 5.1 inch, 25, 60 by 1440, yeah, so basically... 4 gig. But for me, my first impression was holding the S7 Edge and the fact that it was nicer to hold than the S6 Edge. It wasn't as cutting. Yeah, but so... then I also noticed it was warm. <laughs> So one of okay, we can talk about the design first to cover that quickly. So one of the new things in design, so more or less, from the front, it's more or less the same. They kept the same screen size on the basic model. The edge model went up from 5.1 to 5.5 inches. They made it bigger, but it's not not quite as big as the S6 Edge. And one very big design feature, which is very noticeable in terms of ergonomics, is like that the back on both versions is now uh, tapered off on the sides so and it isn't as cutting <laughs> yeah exactly it makes a very big difference in terms of in-hand feel because you actually think it's a smaller phone even well it is actually smaller like two millimeters narrower but it feels much smaller than uh, what you would think it is so i think that's one of the reasons they kind of went with a bigger bigger s7 edge model this year round it's, it's, uh, I agree with you. I, I like the feel of the S7 Edge, especially after the S6 Edge last year. I noticed that a lot of the Edge features were now upgraded to make them easier to use in the software. And, it, you know, last year we saw the Edge and there was questions whether this is just a one-off, this is just a gimmick, whether it's actually going to happen, future devices. But it, it sounds like Samsung are committed to yeah, the Edge design, especially the flagship. It definitely looks like they're going forward, forward with it as a differentiation point. And I think they're refining it, so this time around the S7 Edge is much better in hand. It doesn't feel as sharp. And I think it's a pretty good device in terms of ergonomics and looks. So I think it's going to be popular. But the question is, that in-hand feel, it doesn't help if it uh, melts your hand off. Yeah, so going back to the SoC, so one issue we had like with the S7, well, at least with these units, we don't know if they're pre-production models, if there's something wrong with the firmware or power management, but the power power consumption wasn't that good at all on the new Exynos variants, so I have no idea if we're going to see that in consumer devices or it's just an issue with these exhibition devices. In the presentation, they announced that Inside the device is a heat pipe on the SoC. Now, we've always said at Anantech that if there's a heat pipe in your smartphone, something's going gone wrong. The power consumption of a smartphone shouldn't require yeah. 
So definitely heat pipe in a smartphone. It has nothing to do in a smartphone. If you have a heat pipe, then you have issues with power. And the argument that if you have a heat pipe, it's just for dissipation. It's not valid. Because if your power is low, you don't need dissipation. It's funny because they didn't announce... I can't remember the I can't remember the exact wording they said, but they didn't really say heat pipe. They said water cooling, and and for 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 some of the media websites that covered the event, I noticed that they didn't know the difference between a heat pipe and water cooling. So from my understanding, on the at least on the PC side where we have heat pipes and water cooling, a heat pipe is has a liquid inside, but it's usually contains sintered copper and it's driven by capillary action to move the heat around and it's much more efficient design than the old heat pipes used to have whereas water cooling actually has a physical pump and a radiator so just to clarify this is a heat pipe this is not water cooling if there was water cooling on a phone I'd be even more worried yeah so heat pipes is something we saw introduced into the smartphone sector like last year I think Sony was one of the first ones which which actually introduced it in the Z4 no, Z3 Plus, Z3 Plus. Which SOC was that? So that was the Snapdragon 810. And I'm beginning to see a pattern here. Yeah, that, it, that one was necessary, I think, to, to have any good performance out of that CPU. Yeah, but it's a bad thing. So Samsung, when they do these presentations, they let the media play with the devices afterwards. Um, so we went into the back room and had a look. They had probably had about 200, 250 devices. And we had a look. You had a chance to see some of the specs that were n- not necessarily announced. So, yeah, big big news was, like, finally getting the specification on the new Exynos because we didn't have any details on the frequencies. And so on the CPU side, so this is an 8-core SoC, big letter, four times... The new custom core, which is the Exynos M1. The other cores are still ARMS Cortex A53. We didn't have a lot of information on the frequencies, so what they're doing is like, when their two threads cores loaded up, then they go up to 2.6 gigahertz. And if there's more, more threads which load up more than two CPUs, then they limit the frequency to 2.3 gigahertz across all the four cores. So basically, it's like for single core, single core performance, it's like 2.6 gigahertz. For multi-core performance, it's like 2.3 gigahertz. The A53s at, are like at 1.6 gigahertz, which is kind of like only 100 megahertz higher than the 7420. This is essentially, you know, what we've seen in the PC space before. It's just turbo modes. When the load is not fully multi-threaded, you boost the performance up a few hundred megahertz. Yeah, we, we kind of saw a few implementation of this in, in other phones, I think. I think MediaTek might be doing this too. But, but, but the thing is now, like, I think that they did it just because to, like, um, even out the single, po- single core performance with the Snapdragon 820 variant. And, oh yeah, one interesting thing is actually we went to the LSI booth later uh, the next day and we found out that the reference clocks for the chipset is actually 2.7 gigs boost and 2.4 gigs uh, so, so maximum the- across all cores. So actually it seems like the mobile division actually underclocked it. So we don't know if like the LSI division is actually want, wants to advertise that the clocks are much higher than they... Or, or, or advertise the, the SOC as more of a tablet. I, I don't think so. I don't know. 
I I I don't think it's a tablet SOC. It's it's it's, it's interesting that they say you know reference is two point seven mm. and we're seeing two point six. Now normally when we see devices that have this sort of turbo mode, their advertised speed is usually their turbo speed. Yeah, so actually Samsung has been quite uh, conservative. So all the spec sheets you actually saw next to the devices and everything had to list the 2.3 gigahertz. So they don't actually list the boost clock. Yeah. So it's... maybe maybe they learned the lesson out of the mobile the PC space where they advertise the turbo speeds. It's 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 interesting the fact that here we have a you know a, a new custom core on a 14 nanometer process requiring a heat pipe and 2.6 gigahertz in a smartphone. So yeah, we don't know yet how why that heat pipe is there. So there's like two theories. Like either one, the CPUs are overheating, which would be bad. Number two is like for GPU workloads. So there it might make sense because. We might, we're gonna get back to the Xiaomi Mi 5, but I had some time with it with the Snapdragon 820, so basically the C, the GPU there is uh, still a bit overpowered for smartphone form factors, and Samsung might have been, might have done a strategic. Well, so, so on the Exynos 8890, they're using Mali T880 in the MP12. Yeah, configuration. so it's a Mali T880 MP12 at 650 megahertz. So that's one thing which we didn't know. In comparison, like the 7420 had been going up until 772 megahertz in uh, okay. ALU heavy workloads and only 700 in other workloads. So they actually went down with clocks. So that's been like one theory which we had back in November when they announced the SOC that they might be going for power efficiency instead of... So uh, you, you have more co- more graphics cores at a lower yeah, frequency so, so, and so, voltage. So, so they're trading off die area against... Uh, efficiency. Efficiency, yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting when we get the devices in. We're going to try and nab... A, you know, both the Snapdragon version of the Galaxy and the yeah, Exynos version like of the that, Galaxy. That would be like the optimal scenario to have like an Apple to Apple compa- comparison, same screen, same same everything else, same battery, and really compare the two. Yeah. So the only thing you have different is the uh, the SoC and the baseband. Yeah. So I don't really want to go into depth what we did at the show, but. They, there needs to be some firmware update or something on the SoC on the Exynos side because there's some concerning power issues on the course. One thing we didn't mention necessarily was the fact that um, they've returned back to waterproofing on the Galaxy S7 and S7 Edge. Yeah, so big deal, like waterproofing was first introduced in the S5. The design kind of suffered from that because all, you had all the plastic flaps on the bottom. The The whole device was kind of bigger because of that. So this time around, they you you wouldn't be able to tell that it's a waterproof phone externally because all the waterproofing is done internally. Exactly. So basically, what they did is like have an internal gasket on the micro USB port. So yeah, they're still using micro USB. Something didn't go with USB C. Not yet. We've seen some companies kind of disappointed with that. Some readers might be disappointed with that. But on the other hand, there's also the accessory market, the Gear VR compatibility. There's also a lot of reasons to like stay with micro USB for now. It's until still the ex- a bit cheaper. <laughs> until the ecosystem kind of matures. Going back to waterproofing. So yeah, 
now they yeah you, you cannot tell that it's waterproofed. So basically, on the SimScot, they have an internal gasket which is not visible at all, and yeah, it's just a micro USB port which is a bit special, which well, has some internal uh, isolation against water, and that's about it. Same with the headphone jack, but what 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 would they have to do to the speakers? The speakers uh, would be fine. Uh, I think the speakers will be fine because basically the it's speaker just a membrane it's, anyway. it's just a plastic membrane anyway. Anything, the only thing which can happen is just it gets a bit crushed to, to the water, but otherwise I think it's waterproof anyway. Was it was it IP fifty seven or something? They said thirty minutes in one meter of water. IP sixty eight. Sixty eight. So that that's basically what did they say? It's like one hour under one point eight meters of water. Yeah, so so it's gonna be good enough for most people. And the interesting thing about the the uh, waterproofing is that a lot of people said with the S six, "Hey, why have you lost it?" And now it's back with the S seven. Now people don't normally update their phones every year, so I'm thinking that Samsung in the future might go an on off on off on off strategy. So people who want that upgrade for waterproofing, uh, they'll have that two year upgrade. I don't know about it. I don't know about it. I think it's just. They're gonna go waterproofing from now on because basically they they figured out how to do it without impacting design, and that was at the beginning when when they were first introducing it. Like, yeah, what are we gonna do? We're gonna put a flap on it and (laughs) make it very ruggedized. And of course, the S5 had a removable back for the replaceable battery. Yeah, so it's gonna be much easier now with the S7 to isolate that part of the phone. But the S7 doesn't have a replaceable battery. No, it doesn't, so it's the... Yeah. You're going to have to pop it's the screen be, off to get the, it. That's it. Yeah, the back. You actually pop the back off. Okay. You guys ha- might have seen my, my review. I mean, my, my, my rant in the 7420 review when I, I kind of explained how you actually replace the battery. It's not that complicated. But the big question is now, because of the waterproofing, are you going to impact waterproofing if you do remove your back? Yeah, and so we saw already some teardowns, and apparently, like the goo is itself is what waterproofs the internals. You can. I'm going to take a shot at it in the next few weeks, months, and we'll see how it goes. Another big deal was also their move in terms of camera. So LG kind of went with the same main camera as on the G4. Uh, Samsung went with a very completely different design. On the S7, so you have a now instead of the 16 megapixel shooter with 1.12 micron pixels, now you have a 12 megapixel shooter, which changes the aspect ratio from 16.9 to 4.3, and now it has 1.4 micron pixels, which by the way now are dual pixels. So that's like a technology we saw a few years ago from Canon in DSLRs. So every pixel, every logical pixel, by the way, is is divided into two physical pixels. What that does is like previously we had this like for face detection autofocus in the S6 and also S5, where we had like a few hundred pixels over spread over the whole camera sensor, which detects, which are used basically used for face detection. The, the the way they explained it was sort of left and right eye. Yeah, so so basically, so you can de- detect the difference in phase on an image through the different pixels, and because now the phase will tell you the sort of angular difference. Yeah, 
now on the new sensor, every pixel on the sensor is a face face detection PDAF uh, pixel. What it does is like really improve your focusing speed because you have so much more information. Information. What it does is also, especially in, in low light, where on the six and previous generations you only had a few hundred pixels, which might have worked, might have not worked. And now because you have the whole sensor, which can do face face detection, it's going to be much faster. So I played around with it, and it does make a big difference. It yeah, it works. So, so, so when you said that they were 1.4 micron pixels now, is that um, per logical pixels? So each half is 0. 0.7. Might be. I think. So. I think it's like that. Yeah. So okay. I think every logical pixel, <laughs> like the two combined, is 1.4, and each half is basically half of that. Yeah. Yeah. More tests to come in as the devices yeah. come into our hands. Yeah. After the uh, the Galaxy S7 launch. Yeah, we had a few more press events to go to, but we weren't necessarily expecting any more big WoW flagships, I'd say, throughout the week. Though um, we did get an interesting email from Xiaomi saying, come to our press conference. Come, uh, no, our, our, they said, come to our media preview, which normally for us means a small room of 20 people seeing a device before it's launched. Yeah. But in this case, it meant a room of 300 people while the while the event was being live-streamed. So everybody got the information at the same time. We had Hugo Barra come in on a, uh, on a, I want to say a self-balancing scooter, but everybody calls them hoverboards now. Yeah. Uh, even though they don't hover. <laughs> but, um, Xiaomi, Xiaomi's press conference was really interesting because it was, you can tell Xiaomi cares about the hardware when they speak more, when they speak about specifications first and then user experience later, which is a common thing with, some of the Chinese companies. Yeah, so that's one thing which the Chinese company, I, and I think also everybody was, which is Asia focused because the, the users there, they are really educated in, in, in terms of technology and the companies try to cater to that audience. Right. And so basically we had Hugo talk about specifications for like one hour. Well, well, you, you say that they're, you know, clued up on the specifications, but sometimes that's to their detriment. If all they want is more megapixels, that doesn't necessarily increase quality. Well, that's why they're taking the time to actually explain the technology and why it's going to be better. So that's one big difference between the Chinese vendors and everybody else. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the, they, they launched the uh, Xiaomi Mi 5. This is their new high-end smartphone, Snapdragon 820, 5.15 inch, which kind of sort of get hits that middle point between the 5 inch and the 5.5 inch is quite nicely because it actually feels like a 5 inch in the hand. Um, as, as I see Andre playing with his review unit now. Um, but we have full HD screen. So, uh, 1920 by 1080. There's going to be three models, uh, for sale. The, uh, pro model. So you'll see the Mi 5 Pro. As it's called, uses uh, four gigabyte DRAM, one twenty eight gigabit storage, a gigabyte storage, and the other models use three gigabyte RAM, then thirty two or sixty four gigabyte storage, three thousand milliamp hour battery, one hundred thirty grams, which makes it you know the lightest um, flagship smartphone that we've seen in a while. Um, but there is an optional ceramic back cover, 
which adds about 10 grams. Um, we saw a teardown where the back cover is actually 24 grams in itself, but it uses uh, what they called was a nanocrystalline uh, zirconian structure. So you've heard of cubic zirconia. This is kind of like that. Uh, it's designed to you know, increase durability and hardness. They called in 8 on the Mohr scale. If you're familiar with the Mohr scale, it's about hardness and chalk is 0, 1 and diamond is 10. So this is an 8 compared to steel, which is 4. Andre is playing with it in his hand now. <laughs> he's, he's definitely not scratching the back cover. Thoughts? Yeah, so basically it was Xiaomi who kind of introduced the tapered off sides with the Mi Note and Mi Note Pro last year. And so basically Samsung with the S7, they were not the first to do that. So it was Xiaomi. This is, this is tapered on the back, so yeah. it fits the curve of the hand a bit better. Yeah, so basically, uh, Xiaomi on the Mi 5, they adopted the same design, kinda, uh, from the Mi Note Pro last year. They even went a bit further and also tapped off the, the metal edges. So the whole, the whole side until the, the screen begins is tapered off. And what that does is like, even if it's a 5.15, inch screen it actually feels like much much smaller so i ha- i have the impression i'm holding like a 4.7 inch iphone that they, they, they definitely did a, a great job in terms of ergonomics uh it's it's a very small phone for the screen size they did they went through the yeah. process of explaining how they went they did the design such that the the way to get the best screen to body ratio while still having a fingerprint sensor on the front, which is a first for Xiaomi, means that they also had to have a home button, which is also another first for Xiaomi. But the home button is an oval, and it's thinner than the Samsung home button. But in order to keep it symmetric, that means you have to have a very thin, what they called forehead. Now, when you have a thin forehead, it means that the rear camera has to be moved out of that region and stick out what they've researched or done is actually have their rear camera still in that forehead, so it kind of looks like a an Apple camera in that regard. Yeah, so... But they put a lot of time into design. Yeah, design was a, a big part of the presentation, and what's exceptional here is, like, for the first time, they adopted, like, a home button, a physical home button. They never had it on a previous phone. And, yeah, the fingerprint is built in. It's kind of much thinner than what we see on Samsung devices, Apple. The fingerprint sensor itself works well. So do, 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 do we know who makes it? I didn't look into that yet. But it works pretty well. The error rate is very low. I think the only issue with it is because it's so small, you have to register a lot of your fingerprints at the beginning. Maybe do it multiple times because every time you press it, you're going to hit like a different area of your finger. And that that might reduce the, the accuracy rate. I posted like my hands-on like yesterday. I said it was all good, but last night I was trying to play around with it, and I noticed that actually the the physical button itself, when you press it, is not that good. And when you kind of press on the side of the button, it does nothing. It doesn't register. So on both sides, you press it, you feel the press. It doesn't register, so you have to press the middle button. So it, the, the actuation sensor is in the middle rather than two exactly, on yeah. each side. So they, they, it seems they didn't do that good of a job. And I was wondering because 
I didn't notice it at the beginning and I was like turning the thing on and it didn't turn on. So I pressed the button and the phone didn't turn on. Like I can actually do it now. Yeah. I, I'm watching it and it worked first time. It, uh, always when you have to demo it doesn't work. But anyway. Okay. This, 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 this. Uh, uh, Maybe because we're recording now because we're guys it doesn't work. But I did notice, uh, it, it skips sometimes. Well, one of the things that you've been harping on about since you got the sample was, is the screen. Yeah, so this is not IPS screen. I'm very impressed with the viewing angles. It's, it's as good quality as what Apple employs on the iPhones. Maybe even better. They, they, they said during the presentation that they've switched from the backlight. So a standard five inch smartphone will use a 12 to 14 LEDs in their backlight. What they've done is they've employed thinner LEDs that are also more efficient. So we have 16 LEDs, and they said that that gives up to a 600-nit brightness. Yeah, 600-nit is kind of high. I mean, it, it's... We still need to confirm it's among, it. It's, a, it's among the top devices, basically. But uh, what I'm more interested in is that they claim that it also reduces the... Um, the power by 17%. So reducing the backlight power by 17% on, on an LCD device, it's going to have a noticeable impact. Did, 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 did they say the overall power? I, I thought it said 17% efficiency. So the, the fact that they've also increased the LEDs by 17% or about I, that. I, I think they meant power efficiency. So basically just going to be 17% less power than... All the comparable LCDs at the same brightness. So yeah. Okay. I, th- that's one thing which I'm gonna have to test if it's true or not. But yeah, that's gonna have a noticeable impact on battery life if it does work out. So this is Snapdragon 820, and we were talking about the Galaxy S7 with a heat pipe, and based on the teardowns, this doesn't have one. Yeah. So no heat pipe here. I was already had the opportunity to like. Uh, measure a bit of power consumption of the new Snapdragon, and it looks kind of okay. So nothing mind-blowing, but it's a definitive improvement over the Snapdragon 810s. Vendors are gonna be very happy to to like switch to something new. I, I think going from uh, 20 20 nanometer planar to 16 nanometer yeah, so FinFET. That's gonna have a big impact, but also on the implementation side. Yeah. Not to talk too much about the 810 right now because we're gonna have some more in-depth article in the future where we're going to compare the two SOCs to each other. But they did a pretty good job. It just seems like single core is a bit high, so it consumes about 2.2 watts in terms of power when you... On the current software. I I, I don't think the software is going to change it anyway. It's just maybe on on hardware. They might have a newer revision or the process might mature more. But... uh, yeah, when you fire up one core, it's like 2.2 watts. When you fire up the second core, it's 1.2 watts, which is much better. In terms of performance, it's it's going to end up slightly above the Exynos 7420 in terms of efficiency. So I think they did a good job. We're going we're gonna to get a full review out as, uh, as soon as we can, I think. Yeah. Um, but one of the interesting things, which was funny, because during the press event, as we were trying to type this, our server started doing its daily backup. Um, which meant that none of my text was going through. But the pricing is interesting on the device. So the high-end Pro model that's using the ceramic rear, the 4GB uh, DRAM, the 128GB storage, 
you know, it's 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 a full HD phone, nice screen, high end SOC. You'd think, you know, flagship device, maybe five fifty, six hundred bucks. I mean, I know it is. I know it's Xiaomi and not say an Apple and Samsung, but you'd expect about that range. And they they announced that the price would be two six nine nine Remini B, which that includes tax. So when you reduce it down to US pricing, we're at three hundred and fifty four dollars. Uh, not four hundred as some other places are representing. They didn't. They didn't, somehow didn't catch the fact that Hugo Mario said that the Chinese prices were tax. So three hundred and fifty-four dollars for the Mi Five Pro. That is. Um, I hate to use the word flagship killer because it's so overused, but it's going to be an interesting injection into the smartphone market now. Xiaomi's big markets are obviously Asia. There's a, a dotted around Europe. Um, their penetration into the U.S. market is not so good right now. But um, we actually got an indication of all the smartphone, all the uh, baseband bands, yeah, all the RF bands. We, we always have to wait if those are actually confirmed or not, because even Xiaomi is a bit uh, confused like now, right now in terms of specifications. So, but if if they have a full band support for European U.S. carriers. It's going to be so much more attractive for those users to try to import one a unit. Well, it's Snapdragon 820, so they've covered CDMA in the in the US if it's enabled. Yes, yeah, so, so the modem, of course, it's going to be compatible. But but what needs to be what we're going to have to wait on is like if the battery has the right antennas, if it has the right power amplifiers and bands. Yeah, and yeah, that's just one thing which we're going to have to wait on. Yeah, but definitely, I think for Europe. You're already gonna have band one and no band three and seven. It's gonna be kind of guaranteed to be compatible with. So, what needs to be seen is like band twenty, like eight hundred megahertz, which is kind of important in Europe. If they have that, then they're set. So go import one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, if you try and import one from China, you will be paying China tax. So that is the four hundred dollars plus whatever the EU decides to tack onto that. But Xiaomi Mi 5 is definitely going to be an interesting play. So interesting smartphones for Q1. It's it's interesting. We've got the Huawei Mate 8. We've got the LG G5. We've got the two variants of the uh, Galaxy S7. And we've got the Mi 5. Yeah, so what what's left is like HTC. HTC, which yeah. we hear is going to be in the next... Within the next few months, which <laughs> sounds really vague. And... Um, there have been rumors that Apple may say something or do something at their next event yeah. um, in the next few weeks. So we will have people there at both events and uh, we'll try hard to get devices in to make sure you guys know what we know in, in the reviews. Is there anything you want to add on the, on the new silicon? That we oh, yeah. yeah. So we didn't mention this. Like the 32 gigabyte version of the Mi 5 um, has a, a lobe in Snapdragon 820. So... Qualcomm hasn't really talked about this version of the SoC, but yeah, they're actually selling a lower bin, which is clocked at 1.8 on the fast cores and 1.35 on the slow cores. I don't think the GPU is going to be any different, but yeah, that's that's going to have some impact on performance, and also the memory is going to be clocked much lower. So the the 32 gigabyte, the cheapest version, is going to have like uh, 1333 megahertz, while the 
two faster ones, so the 64 and 128 gigabyte version is going to have 1866. So th- th- there's going to be a noticeable difference between yeah. you know, the low-end version, the mid-range, and the yeah. high-end. I, I, I do wonder why Qualcomm is doing this. So it, it might be an indicator that uh, maybe they cannot get... They, ha- they have to recycle a lot of units, maybe. Yeah. So they um, basically made uh, like a de- dedicated uh, version of the SoC, which clocks a bit lower so they can uh, recycle some low-yielded uh, units. Uh, on the CPU side, you know, rebadging stuff due to yield happens yeah. all the time, not so much it, in the it, it, hap- space. it happens a lot in the desktop space that's like... Yeah. That's we used it for for twenty years, but we haven't seen that much in the in the mobile space. Basically, what they do, they just vary the voltages. So this might be an indicator that uh, the variations are that big that it warrants to actually sell it as a different skew. Well, when you're sticking a billion transistors in a in a small product on a sixteen nanometer yeah. process, more things can go wrong. So the best way to increase profit margins and advertise better yields, I guess is to sell lower binned parts. So Mobile Congress wasn't just about smartphones. There are a few other things at the show uh, that are worth mentioning. Our first our first event of the week, actually, was uh, speaking with HTC before the big announcement that they, they have determined a price for the HTC Vive virtual reality kit. I'll say kit because it's not just the head-mounted display. So... For your $800, which is more than the Oculus, you get the head-mounted display, you get the two controllers, you get two base stations, which can be essentially located anywhere in your space. They don't have to be at 45 degrees. You don't have to have a 5-meter by 3-meter room to do it in. But they can be mounted in sort of at any angle. With this, you also get two games. Now, I've always said that if HTC with the Vive with Steam wanted to sell a million headsets that they would pick a pick a Steam franchise that currently has a 2 in the name and replace it with a 3. <laughs> um, obvious there being, you know, Half-Life, Team Fortress. They didn't do that. We get we get we get two games, uh, Job Simulator and another one which is more like, uh, you know, an integrated reality, augmented reality sort of environment. So, nothing mind-blowing on the content side, but this is HTC and Steam, and Steam have wide fingers. Uh, we actually learned that the Steam Vive demo to deal with uh, the Portal demo, if you've ever had a chance to play with the HTC Vive, they did a Portal sort of demonstration video, was done with uh, hooks into the Source 2 engine. And, you know, I've always thought in the back of my head, maybe they're going to redesign, redo Source, you know, make a Source 3 engine that's going to be VR um, capable, but the sort of musings I got, or at least I didn't get any information if there is going to be a new engine. Um, but they do have hooks into Source 2 internally to uh, to do VR in that respect. So I think they're going to be more working closely with people like uh, Epic on the Unreal Engine and with the Unity Engine to make sure that everything VR-related there is uh, going onward. We did ask about, you know, selling separate controllers or, you know, doing specific things, and they said goal one is to get the Vive, you know, on shelves in people's hands. Uh, I think they said the pre-order date is end of February and it to be shipped in April. So that's gonna, that's gonna come around quite quick. Uh, we've got Ryan's gonna be at GDC and he's gonna get a chance to try the headset for the first time, hopefully. And uh, we'll definitely go on the press list 
to make sure that we've got all the up-to-date information as it comes in. I'm trying to deal, I'm trying to work with some game developers to make a virtual reality based benchmarks so we can tell if certain games are ready, whether you actually do need that, you know, Core i5, quad core to be able to play VR. Uh, some of the things I've seen might work on lower hardware and it would be really interesting to see, you know, VR in that lower space. Uh, they, they, they did say at the event we were that Vive, the recommended um, GPUs for the Vive will be either a GTX 970 or an R9 290. Um, so you could perhaps build that VR-ready system at around $700, $700 to $900 if you don't already have one. But they said that the main thing they see people updating is going to be the GPU first. Then after that, people are more likely to update the whole system. So uh, regarding all the controversy about what CPUs work with VR, as far as um, Steam was concerned, they said upgrade your GPU first, then the rest of the system. So we'll see that as it comes out. Another interesting element of the show, um, which took us a couple of tries to get to grips with, was um, a smartphone with an integrated thermal camera. So this is Cat Caterpillar. Is it, is it Caterpillar or is it Cat? But this, this is a company that normally makes heavy machinery for farming and what have you. But Construction. So they have a smartphone division called Cat Phones. Now, it might be interesting to hear to some and not to others that the business smartphone market is actually reasonably large. So this is companies buying smartphones for their employees. But also in the context of tradesmen. So you have builders, plumbers, um, you know, on-site surveyors. They also have smartphones. And if you're in an environment, a harsh environment, on an oil rig or whatever, you're going to need a device which is both rugged and sustainable and has a lot of features that you need. So if people remember back, I think it was the Nokia 3510 that had that case, that sort of hardware and case. I remember having one and throwing it around the room, scaring my grandparents. Um, eventually, after several years of that, it did break. Um, but there was never really a proper replacement for that. And uh, what CAT have done, the new smartphone is actually built by a company called the Bullet Group, who design these sorts of uh, devices anyway for the industry. Well, what they've done is they've made a ruggerized Android smartphone with a FLIR, is it Nepton or Lepton camera? It's 80 by 60 pixels, and it's basically aimed at tradesmen, rather than having that $1,000 FLIR thermal imaging camera, they can actually pick up this smartphone. I think they said it was 650 euros. Uh, it's it's mid spec the big thing is the ruggedization and the thermal camera. And I spoke with a couple of guys at the Bullet Group. Um, interestingly, they knew who Anantec was, knew who Anantec were, and they, they're based literally an hour from where I live. Um, so I said, hey, you know, when these are, when these are ready to almost go out, let's have a talk. Let's see what we can do. And, uh, we'll cycle around to that. It's interesting because at the show they had eight hand-built prototypes, so they're not even at the tooling stage for mass production yet. And uh, we happily saw uh, someone from another media group decide to throw the phone around, to which he wasn't allowed to use the phone again because of the fact that they were hand-built prototypes. And we asked about the size of the market, and they said, you know, the small thermal cameras, the ones from uh, Seek, 
and Fleer that already exist apparently sold 13 million last year. Um, so they're hoping for a sizable chunk of that market. The fact that it's built in, the fact that it's ruggedized, you know, and they have some extra features for waterproofing. You had a play with a phone, didn't you? Yeah, so I don't know. It's not my thing, so. There's, there's nothing necessarily interesting on the hardware except the fact it has a thermal camera. Yeah, basically, yeah, that, that's, that sums up my opinion of the device. And yeah, it's, maybe it's gonna be useful for like tradesmen, blacksmiths. Yeah, 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 we saw a post in uh, our blacksmith on Reddit saying, is this gonna be useful? Unfortunately, I do not have a smith at home <laughs> to ask this question, but um, you know, from my perspective, I'd love to get thermal imaging of some of the, some of the uh, stuff that I test. And, you know, up until the small miniature cameras came out from Fleur and Seek, that wasn't really possible. And yet I still haven't bothered to go out and buy one. So, uh, maybe this can be sampled and I can get an all-in-one everything. We'll see. It's, it's going to be an, in- for that market, it's almost a revolutionary device. Uh, but they suspect that they'll have like a six to nine month lead in before competitors decide to do the same thing. Um, it'll be interesting to track. Perhaps I should talk about LG's virtual reality headset. Yeah, so Ian has been the main editor at Anantech who like, had experience with every VR. Oh, so I haven't tried PlayStation VR. I've tried most of the rest. And LG VR is interesting. It's this very miniature, very miniature headset, which has to have like a sunblock on it. Um, it has two independent lenses inside that go to a screen. They didn't say what resolution the screen was or anything. But the idea is you plug it into your smartphone and you can play content. You can uh, play 3D content. And there's a lot of... I, uh, I saw a lot of negative comments about it in the other press because everybody's used yeah, to so $700 headsets. Yeah, so basically I tried it out at the launch event and I was... I don't know. It wasn't very impressive impressive at all so the only positive thing about it was like the resolution which is which was much higher than what i experienced on the gear vr right okay so but that was pretty much the only positive thing so basically they advertised it's one of the most the lightest uh vr headsets out there but the problem is like most of the weight is resting on your nose so it actually feels heavier than well, so the, the, the other ones, the the other VR headsets all have sort of head straps that you put exactly, around the head. Yeah. This so, is like a pair of glasses. So, so, so the on the other headsets, the weight is dis- distributed around your face and head, and this one was mainly resting on your nose. So actually, you, you felt the weight more than than the other ones. You needed the sort of sunblock to get the light. So the extra light that comes from under so, your face. So, by the way, Ian is- means like. Uh, what do you it, call it? It's, it's not sunblock, like the cream, like. No, 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 it's no, it's, it's, Some it's, people will misunderstand that. It's, 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 it's a felt covering fabric that yeah. you, that you kind of put around the edge of your glasses to make sure it's like all contained. But the thing is, in order to focus using the lenses, these, uh, you have to adjust them independently and they're inside the block. Well, actually I found that a, a positive thing that you have to. Well, no, it's, it means I couldn't focus with, yeah, I couldn't do the focus without having the block on. Uh, cause yeah, the block yeah, is just too big. yeah, but you adjust it once and then it's fine. I think that's not a big issue, except at the beginning. Yeah, but well, I found well, it very positive that you could adjust them independently because, uh, like for example, the Gear VR. Yeah. You, 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 so people with glasses who might have different, uh, 
eyes. A correction yeah. on each eye. They're gonna like the LG one maybe more. The, the, the thing yeah. is, the, the LG one doesn't account for what they call IPD, interpupillary distance. There, it's just fixed. You could change it. Could you? Yeah. Okay, I, okay, I, I so, didn't know. Uh, I, I didn't yeah, see so, that. So th- apparently that's one, also one problem. People don't realize that you could actually change the distance between the... Between your eyes, yeah. yeah. Okay, so they do that. The problem I have with the trying to focus is the way that they actually show the video. Obviously, streaming 4K video into a headset is very bandwidth intensive. And so there are techniques employed, such as where exactly are you looking? You know, can we uh, compress the quality? Can we apply a filter to make it a less bitrate heavy operation? What I noticed with the LG VR headset was that if you're stationary, it did it full resolution. It was fine. You could hear it. But the minute you moved, and I'm speaking more than sort of half a degree, it would go into a low quality mode until you stopped. And that was very noticeable going in and out of the high quality and the low quality distribution. So obviously with these headsets, what they do try to do is try to predict where you're moving to so they can preload the data. I'm not sure how much of that they do on the uh, LG headset, but it was enough to say, well, hey, look, we're having to decrease the resolution because we don't have the bandwidth necessarily. And that takes you out of the moment, especially when you're... Well, so maybe to like explain how the LG one works. So it's still, you connect it via cable to the G5. So it's via USB-C and... Is it USB 2 or USB 3? It it's DisplayPort. Oh, it's, oh, it's, okay. So basically it's DisplayPort yep. via USB-C. Yep. And everything is done on the phone. Yes. So in terms of bandwidth, I don't know how it... Yeah. If, if you have a local video, I don't know why they still do the compression because it, it, there should be no latency, but apparently Ian exper- well, no, experienced says, some... Uh, I didn't necessarily experience latency. I just noticed the quality change. Yeah. And for me, VR doesn't necessarily work at the best of times. Uh, I never really got into 3D films. Uh, for example, when I watched Avatar in 3D, it took me 15 minutes to even get a proper focus on, on you know the content for me to able to see the 3D. So it doesn't necessarily work that well with me anyway. And when I keep being taken out of you know the environment by moving, then it just it take it it just loses me completely. I mean, when I've tried VR headsets in the past, uh, take uh, Lucky's Tale, the game that uh, game that's shipping with one of the headsets. I remember trying that, and when you're doing a platformer, as long as the screen doesn't change, it's fine. The minute I walked into a special area where everything changed, it took me a good ten seconds to refocus with the 3D. And then when I went back out, it took me another 10 seconds to focus with the 3D, and then I needed to sit down because it was a platformer and I kept seeing drops and I'm not too good with heights. But with this, I just, yeah, I was just being taken out of the moment continuously. The only, the only way I can see this being ultimately beneficial is content consumption, like just showing, you know, like a cinema. Then that's always one of the use cases for VR. You have a cinema in your head. Yeah. Whereas for actual moving around and looking in different directions, I'm, not sure I think I'm going to like it for that, necessarily. Yeah, so or at least with the what they were showing off, they just, could adjust. We're just going to have to wait on the price. I don't think they can... They're able to price this too high because yeah, it's not going to be popular. Yeah. yeah. We're going to wrap up in a second because literally we have planes to catch. But the last thing I want to talk about very, very briefly um, is the new Huawei MateBook. So this is their take on 
the well, they kept comparing it to the iPad Pro and the Surface Pro line. So that's obviously the market they're aiming for. And this is a two-in-one, so it's essentially a tablet with you know a felt cover and a keyboard. Twelve point one inches, two hundred eighty by fourteen forty screen, Core M three to Core M seven. So this is Huawei's first venture with a mobile device with an Intel platform. You know, it comes in four gigabyte, eight gigabyte memory uh, variants from one hundred twenty eight gig storage to five twelve gig storage, running Windows ten. Comes with digitized pen with 2048 levels of pressure, but it's really nicely designed. As in, Huawei over the past year, year and a half have got design right. They yeah. know, they know how to machine metal. They know what sort of feel there needs to be in a device. They understand that, hey, we have hands and they are this shape and therefore devices must not be bricks. And it must not cut you. And so this device, it's very nicely made. Even the low end one, even the, even the core, you know, the base core M3 with four gigabytes of RAM and 128 storage. It's a really nice design. It feels, feels good. It's 6.9 millimeters thin. And so seven, seven millimeters with a four and a half watt core M part. Um, you don't think it should work fan, you know, it's a fanless design. Whereas the Surface Pro 4 has that gap yeah. in it. And the uh, iPad Pro, well, it's an iPad Pro using you know, an ARM-based, ARM architecture-based processor. So uh, that can be fanless. But the base model for the Huawei MateBook is uh, $699, which puts it cheaper than either option from uh, Apple or Microsoft. Or Samsung. So, oh, that's yeah. right. Samsung has a similar 12.1 inch device with same screen and sort of same hardware inside. Yeah, but I, I think they're going to price it much higher because of the screen is AMOLED. So, right, so that, it's the same that, resolution. That, that, that is their differentiating factor. But uh, I would necessarily argue that the MateBook from Huawei looks a bit nicer, nicer to feel. We, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. We, we, we played with both very briefly. Um, but yeah, seven hundred dollars. That is in Core M laptop territory. So the Asus UX, I think it's the 301 or the 303, is a clamshell Core M design as a laptop. So you, whereas this is a tablet or this is a two-in-one. So they have a pen, they have a keyboard. They were showing that, hey, our keyboard has more travel than the other keyboards. Now, I'll be honest, I haven't necessarily tried the other keyboards on the iPad Pro. Uh, Yeah, no. On the Surface Pro 4. So, but... The keyboard was okay to type in. Uh, there was definitely a lot of flex. Now, as I'm writing, I kind of like rigidity in my keyboard. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'd argue for a clamshell. But hey, $699 for what could be, you know, a device that you actually work with on location. Yeah. So basically, when we were talking with some Huawei representatives and they asked our thought on it, like my thought, like first thing, first thing that came up was price. So the price is very attractive, especially yeah. with the hardware. And I, I think it goes from seven hundred dollars all the way up to about seventeen hundred if you want, you know, the max specifications. That's M7, eight gig, uh, five twelve gig storage. The it's going to be interesting. So back with um, the previous generation Core M with the Broadwell. Uh, so this is uh, MateBook is Skylake, previous generation of the Broadwell. We took four or five devices and did a full performance teardown, you know, power consumption, frequency, 
And we found that if you have a great design, it doesn't matter which Core M you pick, it performs really well. But if you have a bad design paired with the high-end processor, it throttles very quickly because the heat can't dissipate or, you know, the company has to increase the skin temperature more in order to make it more performant. So you end up with an SOC at 90 degrees, not at 70, which some would argue is still 20 degrees too high. So it's going to be interesting to see how the MateBook plays out with that. And yeah, MateBook versus Surface Pro 4. This this is going to have to happen at similar price points. And I know Brett's you know, already got Surface Pro 4 in, and uh, we've spoken to Huawei, Huawei, and Brett's going to get a MateBook in as well um, as it comes out. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to stop the podcast there because we literally have to run out of the yeah. door and catch a taxi. Um, there were a few other things that um, we wanted to talk about the show, but we don't have time for. We're going to essentially write those up. Um, we have a ton of news posts to get on. We literally didn't have time to get onto the news post this year, which is incredible given the fact that I would argue that I spaced our schedule a bit mo- out a bit more. It was just incredibly busy. Um, but thanks for listening. Thanks to Andre for being here and doing your wonderful SOC insights. Um, so, so I'm so glad you're here because nobody else in the industry really goes into what you do. Um, and it's great to talk to our, our listeners and our readers about that. Um, but yeah, MWC next year. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening.